This podcast delivered by Australia Post. Whatever you're sending, they make it easy to pay and print your shipping labels from anywhere. And if you're in a metro area, they can come and pick up your parcels with My Post Business. Find out more and go to ozpost.com.au slash podcast. Australia Post. They put everything behind your business. Now, time for the show. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan and I'm here with David Scott. G'day world. And Julia Lee, equity strategist at Bell Direct. Uh, Julia, thanks very much for coming back on the show. Such a pleasure to be here, thanks. Guys, um, this is really happening. Uh, Brexit is coming. Uh, the momentum in the polls is all heading for the Leave campaign. There is still time to go. After Australia came back from the um, long weekend, Tuesday, the ASX sold off by 100 points. Um, and that has really suddenly thrown focus onto what is global markets are now starting to really wrestle with what the fallout from um, uh, Britain deciding to uh, leave the EU, if that is what happens, what that will look like. Um, so there is lots to talk about on that side. Um, also in the show, we're going to look at a quick, quick look at some of the economic data from the week. Um, we had the Fed decision and, um, and we've just got the um, Australian jobs data. We might look at uh, commodity prices. Um, Macquarie Bank uh, has, is of the view that um, the, the bottom might be in um, for a whole bunch of bulk commodities. Um, and we'll have a quick chat about the sport and um, outlook for other things which are um, a little bit less stressful than what we're about to talk about. Okay, here we go. It might happen. Brexit, the momentum, as I said, uh, is all behind uh, the Leave campaign. Julie, I'll start with you. Can you just describe what you've seen happening on, um, on markets as um, the, the, the focus on, on what's happening in, in the UK uh, really comes um, really starts hitting home. Colgo, well, we've known for a while that this vote's coming up on the 23rd of June, and it feels like in the last week um, the worry about Brexit has just intensified um, by a huge amount for markets. And I think this is really the ultimate game of surprise and uncertainty. And for investors and traders out there in the market, it's a decision on whether to buy in this environment, sell down or just stay on the sidelines. And I think what's really changed in the last week is the probability of the Brexit. So just pricing that in and really the view of markets had been that it's a very implausible scenario despite um, what the polling has been saying. Um, and I don't think a lot of money managers or traders are, are really positioned for the possibility of a Brexit, even now with um, the poll, the polling results that we've had this week. So I think leading up to the event, um, we know that markets hate uncertainty and it is pretty much a binary outcome. So essentially, it's the difficulty of trying to position yourself for one of two outcomes. Yeah, um, there's been um, a couple of things, I think, that have happened. Obviously, the polls um, are consistently now showing, starting to show leave ahead. Um, and that is obviously putting some focus on it. But there's been some other things. Um, people who are coming forward who you maybe previously wouldn't have expected to come forward and saying, okay, it's time to go. Um, Ambrose Evans Pritchard, sort of the ultimate globalist, if you like, um, wrote in The Telegraph, um, and this is a guy who's closely followed in, in, in markets, um, 
uh, a very good financial and markets commentator, economics commentator, and he just said, you know, as he pointed out, you know, anybody who claims that Britain can lightly disengage after 43 years enmeshed in EU affairs is a charlatan or a dreamer or has little contact with the realities of global finance and geopolitics. These are just, you know, some of the statements that, that talk about just how what a big deal this is going to be. Um, David, um, you will have been tracking this um, over the last few weeks. What has been your take on, on the increased focus on it um, over, the, over the, the, the course of the last few days? Just a whole lot of uncertainty in the marketplace. As uh, Julie said, it's a binary outcome. It's going to be one way or the other, and no one knows exactly what the fallout will be. Um, you know, we've heard Armageddon, uh, Doomsday, uh, kind of scenarios that have been portrayed. Other people think it'll be uh, rather muted. It'd be interesting to go and see what actually is the outcome, uh, particularly uh, just with the time zone and, uh, and, and the timing of it. It's going to be very interesting here in, uh, in Australia and in Asia in general. We're going to be uh, you know, at the forefront of when this happens. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see how the markets react, particularly in a time zone where generally there's so much uh, that the trade is so much thinner than what you'll find in uh, in Europe and the US. I'm, I'm thinking along the lines of will it be somewhere between what we saw during the European debt crisis and a Lehman moment? I hope not, but uh, look, realistically it could be anywhere along those kind of lines. Uh, I presume that what will happen is that a lot of the central bankers have already discussed this at length as to uh, what uh, the possible uh, outcomes will be and they'll be doing coordinated efforts to go and st uh, stimmy any, uh, any volatility in the markets. They won't be able to go and obviously address all of it, but coordinated action from central banks is a very, very powerful thing. And that's something that I think that markets need to be very aware of as well. I think one of the signs, one of the big signs, I mean, if you're looking for a signal that um that the, just how concerned people are starting to get um, and how risk-averse people have become. Um, landmark uh, uh, moment in, in global markets this week, which was um, German 10-year bonds, um, the yields on them falling below zero for the first time. So effectively, investors saying they will pay the German government to keep their money for 10 years. That is extraordinary. Um, now, the German 10-year is basically the, the benchmark bond uh, in, in Europe. Um, Deutsche Bank's Jim Reed, um, who does uh, his daily note, early morning read, there's chaos in markets. He always finds some way of sort of lightening it a little bit before getting into his hard analysis. But he said, look, it was like the, like the shooting of JFK or, or man walking on the moon or maybe even watching the Red Wedding on Game of Thrones. Uh, you know, w w people will remember where, you were, where they were when they uh, first heard that German bond deals had gone negative for the first time. But um, it is a real um, sign that um, the, the risk aversion uh, is, or risk is coming off the table. Um, now, what we're likely to see over the coming week is increased volatility as a, as a result of that. Um, Julia, I wonder if we can take a bit of a step back. Maybe you can talk the audience through what uh, we mean when we talk about volatility specifically in financial markets and how that might look over the next week. Sure. I think the reason why we're focused so much on volatility at the moment is because people are trying to work out, you know, how do you trade a potential catastrophic event? And the answer to that is that people go into things like uh, German bonds, which is why we've seen the negative yield, or gold, which has been well bid as well. Um, and 
run away from risk assets. But look, another way to be to to play um, catastrophe is through the VIX, which we call the volatility index, which is based on options pricing and the options market, and is based on historical volatility. Um, and I think that's why volatility is so much in focus at the moment, because one way you can play um, this event or trade this event is through the different VIX products which are out there in the market. Look, the VIX overnight uh, this week, the, the high has been around 20.5. Um, and since last Wednesday, just to give you an idea... Which is idea, historically very high. Oh, well, during the global financial crisis, we did hit, hit numbers around 80. So still relatively low, but it's high compared to where we were last week. So last week, you know, we were around about a reading of 14, and this week we've spiked to a reading of around about 20. So an almost 50% move within the space of a week. So you can see why these volatility-type products would be quite attractive in the market that we're in. And if you're forecasting that volatility is going to rise further on the back of the potential break, Exit, then you know you'd be trading volatility and you'd be long volatility. Not only that, combined together, the fact that this week we see options expiry, which is a huge event over in the US, and options expiry here on Thursday in Australia as well. And the reason. I guess why this is huge is because of the macro risks we're seeing at the moment and because markets have been moving downwards. So anyone with naked put exposure means that they're more likely to be exercised or have to buy the underlying stock or commodity or index. And, um, you know, if you want to sort of hedge that and you know you have to buy stocks or you go short the stock. So it just sort of makes the downward move even bigger than it actually is. So I think volatility in terms of the markets, we often think of it as how we define risk. But I think volatility in this context and the reason why we're using it so much is because it's another product to trade to be able to um, take advantage of the Brexit event. David, um, volatility is something that you write about increasingly. Um, You've been looking at it, you know, a range of asset classes worldwide, um, on a day-to-day basis. Maybe you can give us your take on how you've seen um, markets thinning out and, and what the results um, have been on um, on markets and the knock-on effects that, that we see. We've just seen an increase in skittish trading by behaviour. You, know, you saw that uh, earlier this week there was a, a sharp uh, risk-off trade, so risk assets across the board were getting uh, absolutely slammed. Uh, gold was bid. Then all of a sudden, uh, we saw last night. All of a sudden, uh, you know, everything was good again. We had uh, you know, stocks in the uh, in Europe up around one percent or plus. Uh, and now we're seeing today in Australia stock market. You know, the share market's recovering as well. The Aussie dollar's moving higher. The Kiwi dollar's moving higher. And I think it's just going to be something you're going to see even more so uh, next week when markets really start to go and thin out because people, I think, are going to be reluctant to go and make a move. There's going to be plenty of time after the event to go and decide whether you want to go and buy or sell a particular asset. Uh, but at the moment, everyone's just concerned about what the actual outcome will be. No one can make a, an investment decision based on what we're seeing in the polls. They're so tight. In the lead-up to, uh, to the event, you know, I expect that there's going to be an increase in volatility again. Uh, I can't see any other option unless there's a definitive sign that the markets get from the polling or something on those lines that says that there's going to be one outcome one way or the other. After the event, if Brexit does occur, uh, I think that uh, there's a lot of research going out saying that the, uh, there could be an asymmetric uh, kind of outcome uh, where there's going to be far more downside for risk assets than you'll find for upside. 
but it all depends on what actually occurs in the day. And that's, once again, it's something that no one really knows what the answer is going to be. And look, we probably won't know the answer until, you know, uh, midway through the morning next Friday. I just want to um, talk through um, a bit of the, the characteristics that drive volatility, right? So it is essentially investors uh, in, in increasing numbers st- um, step back from the market. So you get the market becomes less liquid. And therefore, as a result, prices, what the, Julia, you can talk through how, why prices move um, more violently in that scenario. Sure. That, well, they say, you know, prices go up through the stairs and down through the elevator. Or, um, and I guess in terms of downward movements, you can think of as quick pricing. And I suppose there's a reason why the VIX index, which is how we measure volatility in global markets, which is based on uh, the S&P index, over in the U.S. is called the fear index. It's because, you know, when there is fear and prices are moving downwards, then we do see a spike in terms of volatility. So movement upwards in volatility tends to be correlated with a movement down in terms of equity markets, which is why I guess it's important to investors. But mostly in terms of its usage, it's more for the options market and the pricing of options. And a spike in volatility simply means the cost of insuring your portfolio gets more expensive. And in this type of environment where we are seeing increasing fear, people are looking for that catastrophe insurance, if you like, which is things like buying volatility or going long vol, um, buying gold, and of course, buying bonds, which means a fall in yields. So one of the, when you you take a global perspective, one of the assets um, in markets that is used as a proxy for risk appetite is the Australian dollar. Um, so, you know, if you want to kind of know how global markets are feeling on any particular day, just have a look at um, where the Aussie is trending and you sort of can get a bit of a, 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 re- a quick read on it. Um, but the Aussie has been in this, as we've looked at the risk building and everybody's been talking about global markets, the Aussie's been actually holding up pretty well. Um, Richard Grace, um, Commonwealth Bank's chief currency strategist had a very good note out um, this week, and he says um, that he doesn't believe markets are appropriately pricing the risk um, on on the Australian dollar. Um, He talks about Brexit, saying that we um, anticipate global equity and commodity markets declines will lead to a reassessment of the global economic growth outlook. Uh, and the fact that referendum results will be released, um, David, as you mentioned, in the less liquid uh, Asian time zone. He also says that the lack of pricing for uh, larger than normal downside potential in the Australian dollar is is curious because uh, I think there's a really interesting note that the Australian dollar has a long history of big reactions to negative global events. So we'll obviously be watching the Australian dollar next Friday morning very closely, right? And I think he has a very valid point. In terms of the psychology of investing in traders, people tend to, um, I guess, overestimate the impact of near-term events and underestimate the impact of further out events. And in terms of the currency markets, I don't think the currency markets are looking at the Brexit in isolation. They're looking at that and they're comparing that with the other big macro event in the market, which is U.S. interest rates. And the fact is that the FOMC meeting was this week and in the face of, you know, declining expectations around interest rate hikes in the U.S., it has meant a weaker U.S. currency and a stronger Australian currency. So I think the Aussie is still benefiting from uh, 
from the strength from that decision. But now that's passed, there will be a focus on the Brexit. And I wouldn't be surprised to see our further weakness coming through for the Aussie dollar ahead of that vote on the 23rd of June. So I think at the moment, um, still dominating the medium to long term um, forecast for the Aussie dollar is mainly the US. And if you have a look at currency, traditionally the areas of strength in terms of turbulence, Japanese yen, Swiss franc, as well as the US currency, well, this time around it's a little bit different just because the FOMC meeting has been so close to this Brexit vote and the expectations around US interest rates have shifted so dramatically. Yeah, the Aussie dollar is an interesting one from my perspective. I think uh, the lackadaisical uh, approach to uh, to what we're seeing in currency markets in particular is just the, the mindset that's been drilled into investors' minds over and over again since the global financial crisis is the backstop that uh, that central banks you know will have your back. They'll be there to go and rescue the situation, um, which I think is kind of explaining why the reaction in currency markets and uh, and and probably broadly uh, risk assets in general has been kind of uh, muted at this point in time. Uh, as I said at the start of the, uh, the show, I think the, they'll have a whole lot of uh, measures ready to go in on Friday morning our time, Thursday, uh, Thursday evening in Europe, uh, for when this event occurs. If Brexit was to occur, they will be well aware that there's going to be a lot of uh, participants in the market will not be there. They will go and pull their, uh, their lines. They will be uh, waiting for the outcome. They're not going to be going in front running the decision in case they get stuck on the wrong side of the trade and they know how liquid it will be. And that's where it comes down to these central banks to go and be the backstop for the markets and to go and calm the markets down. And look, uh, and there's been a lot of uh, criticism of central banks over the, over the years, including from myself. But I think on this occasion and what we're seeing in the past, when it comes to a crisis scenario, I think that uh, you know, they have the firepower to go and, and, and combat extreme market volatility, even the worst of the global financial crisis, we saw that. So uh, there was a, there's been a report um, that uh, Treasury, um, just at government, Australian government level, um, has been wargaming um, the scenario for, um, you know, what a, what a Brexit might look like. My reaction to that is I would hope so. Um, you don't want them rocking in uh, next Friday morning going, oh, maybe we should have a bit of a think about um, the impact of the world's fifth largest economy um, seceding from Europe. Let's look ahead to that specific day. Um, the polls um, will close 10 p.m. Uh, London time. So that'll be 7 o'clock in our morning. And then about four or five hours later, there'll be some exit polls. So we might have a really good indication actually before the, before the ASX opens. Um, but then we should start getting a result maybe 11 a.m. Uh, midday. Julia, how do you see that day playing out um, on, um, on the ASX? Well, it's one of two A's, either really well or really badly. Yeah. Um, I think the Brexit, the difficult thing is there's the ideology behind it and then there's the financial consequences behind it. And I think, um, I think the ideological side is winning out and that's what's coming through in terms of the polls and Britain leaving um, the EU but I think people sort of discount the financial side and the impact and the, um, the thinking in people's mind and whether they'd be willing to stick with ideology when you know there's a financial consequence to it so I think it's a hard one and it depends on which way it's going to go and the 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 reason we're talking about this is because it's too close to call. Yeah, and it's it's not necessarily just contained to 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 just um, the UK, as you say, right? So 
there was some modeling this week that, um, from um, the German Institute for Economic Research, and they're looking at an impact on German GDP growth of um, half a percentage point, which is very significant, half a percentage point next year. Um, that is really significant in terms of the overall scheme of things. Um, so, and, and I think the, the question is, you know, that's Germany. Um, when, you, when you roll up the knock-on effects to all sorts of other um, national economies around the world, uh, you're looking at something um, potentially quite significant, right? I mean, from a financial perspective, um, I think the timing of this is a problem. It's at a time when, you know, the Eurozone is looking weak, it's got negative interest rates. Um, and, you know, if we do see a Brexit, there will be a massive reaction in terms of markets. I mean, in terms of the stock markets, I wouldn't be surprised to see a 10 to 15% move. Um, in terms of practically, I don't think we're going to see a huge impact straight away because it's going to take a while for a Brexit to actually happen. In fact, it may Two take years. a number of, number of years. But the uncertainty of it, we will see an immediate reaction in terms of markets. Um, yeah, especially in terms of equity and currency markets. Individual stocks, um, any thoughts on what might be specifically exposed? Absolutely. I mean, there are uh, the ones that are bleedingly obvious, like CYB and um, Henderson Group, which makes up, up pretty much 100% of its earnings over from the UK euro area. Um, there are ones that aren't so obvious as well. The healthcare space has been an area that has been hit hard this week, and you would traditionally expect this to be a defensive area that outperforms in times of market volatility, and that would usually be right. But in the case of the Australian healthcare space, there is a huge exposure in terms of currency and overseas revenue, and that's really why you're seeing these share prices being hit quite hard. For example, um, CSL generates 90% of its uh, revenue overseas. It's highly dependent on the Swiss franc. It's got extensive operations in Switzerland and with the Swiss francs being seen as a bit of a safe haven, we have seen it trending upwards uh, compared to the US currency. Ansel, which is of, often seen as a defensive company as well, has 80% of its revenues, more than 80% of its revenues from the UK euro area. Same with Amcor. So there's a number of companies uh, exposed on the Australian market and the ones that come to mind straight away is CYB, Henderson Group, HGG, which have both been impacted um, quite hard. And then even some of those defensive names like CSL, like Ansel, like Amcor, um, Macquarie Atlas, um, which has its assets over there as well. So there are a number of companies, and I guess people running have been running the ruler. So you've already started to see these impacts uh, flow through for these stocks. Can I ask you uh, just quickly on the banks, um, how do you see the outlook there? Well, if you have a look at when Australian banks have cut interest rates um, in the last few decades, it's been three times, um, 1987, 1990s recession and the global financial crisis. Um, and in most of these circumstances, you have an external shock. Um, so having an external shock would obviously be a negative for banks, especially at a time when their earnings um, growth capacity is declining and a lot of people see the banks as a yield play. Um, I think the threat of a decrease in dividends would increase if we were to see a shock like a Brexit. Okay, you're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. You can find the podcast on iTunes. Uh, if you're in there, uh, please uh, rate us and, and leave a review.
Um, okay, uh, let's quickly look at economic data from the week. Um, it's getting into the back end of the month, so we're a little bit lighter on um, on economic data. But big one, um, the, the, the mother of all central banks, the Fed. Um, a few months ago, this uh, June decision was um, a, a real um, live, um, uh, live meeting, but that really quickly um, reduced over the last sort of eight weeks or so. And David, uh, let's, uh, why don't you talk through uh, Janet Yellen and, um, and what happened this week? I could be lazy and just say that uh, our discussion for the last uh, last 15 minutes or so is pretty much probably along the lines of what the Fed would have been talking about during their uh, their June policy meeting. Uh, like everyone else, they're waiting to see what the outcome is in, uh, in Britain. Uh, beyond that, they still expect to go and in hike interest rates twice this year. That, to me, looks a little optimistic, and they've tended to be over-optimistic uh, year after year after year. Um, look, realistically, it's going to come down to the jobs data and inflation outlook, uh, excluding the macro factors, obviously, which we've discussed with Brexit, uh, which would be, if Brexit was to occur, I think there's no Buckley's chance that we'll see a rate hike in the U.S. this year. Uh, in terms of the actual outcome from the meeting, I think it was largely expected. You know, it's uh, kind of, you know, we're waiting, we're fairly confident with what's happening, but we just want to see a bit more data. My view has always been over the past sort of, uh, you know, three months or so that if they were to go this year, it was always likely to be in September. I uh, kind of fell in a, a reasonable time where it's reasonably before the US uh, election outcome and also gave them a bit of time to go and get through the, uh, the Brexit Dramas. Uh, the other thing um, we've seen is um, just that we're recording on um, uh, close to lunchtime on, on Thursday, and the other thing um, we've just seen is the Australian jobs data. Uh, plus 18,000 uh, jobs for the month. Pretty good um, results. Um, steady as she goes, Julia. Woohoo, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, we've seen strong GDP numbers here in Australia now. The jobs numbers continue to be quite strong. Um, and I think this ties into, you know, the election that we have in Australia in July. Um, you know, given the strength of the Australian economy, I really can't see a government change here. And I think once we get through that election, it will actually be a positive thing for the markets. If we don't see Britain leave the EU, we get through the election, I think, you know, July, August could be pretty good for the Aussie share market. Very good. Um, I just want to quickly, um, this is something that will feed into a lot of um, Australian uh, company valuations. Um, commodity prices, um, Macquarie has um, updated its, its, its forecasts um, for the bulk commodities. Um, it looks like the bottom might be in for, for a whole bunch. They are looking to um, spot price for iron ore, 51 bucks um, this calendar year. Fifty dollars, uh, 2017, um, but then 2020 looking at um, at 60, 60 US uh, dollars. Um, David, uh, you follow the commodity markets uh, pretty closely, and you wrote about this uh, this week. Um, what's your take? Depends on what, what kind of person you are, I guess. It's uh, you, know, you can look on the bright side and say that things aren't getting worse, but then on the uh, the, the other side of the uh, the coin, you've uh, there's nothing really too exciting to get about. You know, we've seen commodity prices in general have fallen to such low levels that it's idled a lot of excess capacity, more marginal capacity uh, that was in the marketplace that was helping to contribute to uh, to their clients. Um, now it's at a level where the prices. Uh, not seeing any new investment come on board, so there's no more supply hitting the market. So it's just waiting for demand to catch up. Uh, but longer term, it still looks like you know for this this cycle at least, you know we're we're around the bottom. We're going to probably be there for uh, for another couple of years, in my opinion. It's uh, very hard to go and see anything, particularly with the U.S. dollar still likely to go and strengthen over the longer term, based on they are currently in you know, a, a tightening cycle, whereas almost everywhere else in the world, including the eurozone, uh, the Bank of Japan, are still looking to ease policy. 
Uh, so when you, unless you want to talk about uh, commodities that are priced in other things rather than uh, the US dollar terms, yeah, the uh, the outlook is uh, it's it's not terrible. But then then again, it's certainly not going to be going back to the levels that uh, we saw, you know, 2011, 2012. Uh, and Julia, um, just on the, the the commodities, um, how do you see uh, how do you see the price action lately and um, over the next year? Or so? It's been great. I mean, in uh, 2016 so far, the material sector has been the best sector for the ASX. It's up. Uh, 13%. The energy is not so good. And I think the energy is an interesting one. It's pretty flat. And that's despite, you know, West Texas crude being up 28%. Woodside Petroleum is actually down 8% in the year to date. Um, and I think that tells you a bit about the energy space at the moment that you have to be quite selective in the way you play it on the Australian share market. For example, companies like Wally Parsons have had a much higher correlation with, uh, where the oil price has been in 2016 than, you know, the biggest energy company on the Aussie market like Woodside Petroleum. But look, outside of oil, which is an interesting one and a little bit strange on the Aussie share market, the other thing to mention that within the material space is included gold. And look, gold's up 22%. It's trending well upwards. Stocks like Saracen, St. Barbara Mines are up over 100%. So, you know, after what's been a horrific couple of years for the Australian gold miners, they've had the fat cut out, they've now got strong cash flow coming through, they're able to pay down debt, they have money coming through the door. Things are looking pretty good for the gold miners. I'm just looking at uh, these um, um, Macquarie forecasts. Uh, one of the interesting lines in there is that on the lithium price. So lithium, uh, there's been a lot of excitement in the Australian market this year on lithium, a uh, key component in um, in rechargeable batteries, things like Teslas, etc., um, that um, you know, um, new technology that is likely to be. A, well, a lot of people believe there's going to be a lot of demand for lithium. Um, looking across the line on on the Macquarie forecasts, um, they're looking at uh, 8,200 um, for um, a ton, or 8,300 for a ton of lithium, um, fourth quarter this year, but. Um, then um, around about the same price in calendar year 2017, and then down to 7,500. So, yeah. Um, and then further falls um, at to, you know, 2019, $7,000, 2020, 6,750. Okay. Um, I guess there's a lot of talk about lithium, and the question you need to ask yourself is whether lithium is in a bubble or whether it is a new energy source of the future. So it's our new oil. Um, so whether we are seeing a longer-term structural shift in terms of our energy needs, and I, I tend to think it's the latter, that we are seeing a total shift in terms of how we consume energy, moving away from oil and moving towards things like lithium. The big question I have with lithium is um, whether it, it could potentially be replaced uh, further down the track, you know, maybe in three years' time, four years' time, because we have seen... Um, you know, technological developments moving so quickly in this area, in the area of battery, um, portable energy storage, which is why lithium is so popular. Um, we use it in portable batteries, things like laptops, our phones, but also electric cars. And um, I think for the time being, you know, there is not really a huge alternative to lithium. And in terms of the supply-demand dynamics, we know that electronics companies are trying to secure longer-term supply, and they're worried about a spike in prices. I think in terms of lithium companies listed on the Australian market, 
Well, Australia has a relatively long history in terms of lithium mining, which is pretty short in the global scheme of things. We've only been mining lithium seriously over the last 10 years. So no doubt we'll see a lot of changes in terms of how we mine lithium at the moment. But um, And the investment into and it. And the investment into it. But I think every sort of base metal explorer at the moment is trying to get in on the lithium train. So you have to sort of try and differentiate the serious lithium deposits from, you know, just trying to buy into the hype and almost the lifestyle companies of some of these resource type companies. Having said that, you know, lifestyle. <laughs> an old Australian company, Talisman, is responsible for about 31% of global supply. Unfortunately, about 51% of that company is now Chinese-owned and I think 49% of, of it's US-owned. But I think this is a space to watch. Um, yeah, I, I'm just, I just want to um, clarify one little thing on that lithium price. Um, so if you're looking at a price of um, 67.50 in around um, in around four years' time, uh, last year it was about 5,200. So um, obviously this is uh, something that's popped. Yeah, just very quickly, with that Macquarie note, uh, just based on the, the cycle, what they're expecting is uh, you know, the higher prices to go and bring forward supply. So I uh, know miners to go and expand operations, and that's what the, uh, the, the reason is for the... Uh, the slight uh, no, dip there in the, uh, the outer years. Very good. Um, okay. Um, you've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Um, David, you were out of the country um, last weekend. Uh, probably a good, good time to, um, to be overseas with uh, what happened to the Swans and the Wallabies. You'd think so, but I was in uh, English-speaking Singapore with a whole lot of expats, including a lot of Englishmen as well, and uh, didn't we know it? Uh, Come time at the end of the Wallaby Test match, that was a very uh, disappointing result, and uh, we were humiliated uh, at, at the bar at, uh, in Singapore and made to know how we were still the convicts and everything else. And uh, the Swans on Sunday as well, uh, another disappointing outcome. So it was really a, a terrible week. So luckily, I got myself up to uh, the Infinity Pool at Marina Bay Sand and, uh, and drowned my sorrows with probably the uh, the world's most expensive beers, the the Beer Tower of Terror. We called it. It was about one hundred and twenty dollars for a tower of beer. Mate, I, re I really, really feel for you, particularly after uh, Ireland's um, notched up an absolutely historic uh, win, beating South Africa in South Africa for the, for the first time in in, uh, in 56 years. Um, great, great win for for the boys in green. Um, Julia, um... you know I love the rugby too. <laughs> Not so much because of the outcome of the game, which I never can remember, but more because of the um, pie eating and the beer drinking. <laughs> Fantastic! Look, um, uh, I, I suppose uh, you know we've been looking towards this end of the of of June and um, I suppose early July with an election coming up. Um, did you have a good break uh, over the over the bank holiday weekend? I had a fantastic break, um, and I guess it's going to speed up coming to the end of financial year. Just a quick mention of the Stockbrokers Awards here in Sydney next Thursday, which we'll see 500 people in the industry um, getting together on the yeah, day nice. of the Brexit vote. So it should be a pretty big Friday, probably a few sore heads on the Friday. A few um, things to talk about. <laughs> should be. Um, but the other thing is end of financial year. Look, we haven't paid a lot of attention to it because of um, what's happening in terms of uh, Britain as well as the FOMC meeting. But the fact is that the ASX 20 is down 8% in the financial year to date. And big names like ANZ down 16%, Commonwealth Bank down 15%. That means, you know, the tax loss-related selling is going to be on the big end of town. So keep a watch out in that lead up to the end of financial year as well. Okay, it's going to be, um, it's going to be a very uh, exciting couple of weeks ahead. 
Um, we're going to leave it there. You've been listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Our guest this week uh, has been Julia Lee, Equity Strategist at Bell Direct. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. And David Scott, uh, thanks for coming on the show again. Pleasure as always, and I'll see you next week. You can find the show on iTunes, and you can find us all individually on Twitter. Uh, I'm Paul Colgan, and uh, have a great weekend. Today's episode was delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business, helping you save time and money. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when you send on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.